breaker one, breaker one might be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy cooter coming at you. Hey, fast line, fast track. Y'all got your ears on out there? John Beard to New Holland. Just look at the load I'm hauling. Hard work, I hit it harder. Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer. Sun up to sundown. Backing up traffic all the way to town. Camo hat and a farmer's town. Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. It's great to have you with us. On this episode, pork producer delegates convene for the National Pork Industry Forum, plus watching dairy production for signs of trouble. We talk weed control with North Dakota State University's Dr. Joe Eichley and equipment lubricants with Case IH. We also talk innovation with Craig Breckis and Lynn Justison from agrochemical and seed producer UPL. Jesse Allen is along with a market talk update and the hot rod farmer Ray Bohax has another installment of Bushels and Scents. Finally, we hear the timeless traditional country music sounds of Miss Dawn Anita. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. Well, this week on Fast Line Fast Track, we start out with some news and pork producer delegates from across the country met virtually on Wednesday at the National Pork Industry Forum. According to Brian Humphreys, Vice President of Producer and State Engagement with the National Pork Board, these 150 producer delegates are selected from their home state as representatives to the Pork Forum to set direction for the industry. The responsibility of the delegates that have been elected to come to Pork Forum uh, are first to elect candidates to the National Pork Board's Board of Directors. Uh, to set the checkoff rate every year and then pass any advisements to the National Pork Board that offer us direction throughout the next year on priorities we should be working towards. Humphrey says that discussions had and decisions made at the Pork Forum will lead the industry forward. The most important thing happened at Pork Industry Forum today uh, is that this is this is where decisions are being made. The, the discussion that folks and the delegate floor virtually are going to have today really helps set the direction and guidance of how your checkoff dollars as producers are spent. And the reality is it's this group that shows up that has the, the, the in-depth conversations, discusses the issues at hand, and really helps set the direction that our board of directors, but also the staff at the National Pork Board, look to for guidance as we put together what we're going to work on, not only in 2021, but into the future also. Earlier this week, producers had the opportunity to hear from Professor Mohan Sawney, the Associate Dean for Digital Innovation with the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Sawney's presentation on global trends affecting U.S. pork and case studies of successful consumer-focused businesses is now available at pork.org. According to Humphreys, pork producers also honor two individuals who have made a tremendous impact on the U.S. pork industry. We are, we are excited to honor Roy Pogue with a Distinguished Service Award for a, not only a, a lifetime of achievements and contributions to the U.S. pork industry, but we're also recognizing Don Nickenham for the Paulson Whitmore State Executive Award. Don's been the executive of Missouri Pork for a number of years and has truly led this organization, his organization in the industry through some uh, tremendous times. Shifting from pork to dairy, a dairy market expert says there are warning signs in the market for 2021. 
Brian Doherty of Total Farm Marketing says those warning signs lie within production. If you really stop and look at production capability that our producers today have versus even a decade ago or particular 20 or 30 years ago, it's been a revolution. And so when you get high prices, you get some natural expansion when you have good foodstuffs. And for the most part, we've had good crops. There's feed availability. I think that's our sort of our biggest wet rag is just dairy producers are just really good at what they do. Coming out of COVID, global demand could improve, but Doherty still cautions that production expansion could be a limiting factor. Don't underestimate the demand markets worldwide, especially as we come out of COVID. But still, it looks like the market has a couple of times now been way at the forefront of that. And then we kind of get the rug pulled out from under us. And yet that those rallies, I think, have kept the production cycle active and alive. And, and the last several production reports have indicated that. Meanwhile, support from the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program and other government programs provide short-term support. There will be support, but we've got to recognize that when these things cycle back into the market, I think now twice the market has kind of got a taste of it and realized bears are ready to go when this comes in because they know this is short-lived, whether it's a two-month window or six, it still has a short-lived shelf life. And that would be sort of the buzzword I'd use, the shelf life of higher prices. And on a related note regarding r slash Wall Street bets on Reddit, targeting stocks and then a commodity of silver, Doherty says don't expect them to target farm commodities. When you look at some of these stocks that blew up, you have this mass media that can, on their phone, get a zillion people with a few thousand dollars to, let's say, chase some stocks and kind of play the game, stick it to the hedge fund. When it comes to commodities, I don't want to say it can't. I know everybody's going to think, well, what about the Hunt brothers? I mean, yeah, we saw that silver back 50, 40 years ago. But the exchanges are different in the sense that they can raise the margin requirements on contracts daily if they want to, to slow down volatility in the marketplace to say, look, if you're going to be into this market, you need to put up substantial money. And a big thank you to Brian Winnikins with WRDN Radio in Durand, Wisconsin for that audio. And finally this week, each growing season presents unique challenges for farmers, but 2021 may provide some additional complications thanks to millions of prevented plant acres in 2020. Wet conditions kept many farmers from getting crops established on those acres in 2020, and as a result, there are ramifications for growers in 2021. North Dakota State University Extension weed specialist Dr. Joe Eichley says weed control for 2021 will depend on how those prevented plant acres were handled last season or the past two seasons. And that's going to be a range of of different ways they were managed from absolutely nothing the field was left untouched, which from a weed perspective is really the worst case scenario. So if you have one of those situations, the field was not touched, you're going to be looking at a lot of weeds, maybe more weeds than you've ever dealt with in that field before, because the only thing growing out there would have been weeds, and they produce a lot of seed, and, and that's a lot more weed seed going back into that field, ready to germinate and be problematic uh, for 2021. Eichley says many producers have used a glyphosate application to manage weeds as a pretty cheap option to cover a lot of acres. It actually controls still a large amount of the weed species we have out there, but problematic weeds like water hemp, mare's tail, that can thrive in wet soils and are glyphosate resistant. If that's how you manage the fields, then we're looking at uh, probably a shift towards a lot more of those weeds, so a, a lot of water hemp, a lot of mare's tail that you'd be dealing with into the 2021 season. And if you dealt with your weeds pretty pretty well and, and timely during prevent plant, uh, it's pretty much just going to be like any other year. So it kind of depends on on how those fields were managed in prevent plant. If you're going to be dealing with your normal situation or a lot of 
weeds, such as the diversity of weeds, or a lot of specifically of these uh, resistant weeds like water hemp or mare's tail. Eichley says the beginning game plan for the year is to expect a lot of weeds. If we do have a, a lot of those different types of weed species, uh, then we're going to want to definitely going to want to start with the pre-emergence herbicide and whatever crop we use. Uh, and something relatively broad spectrum that can get both broadleaf weeds and grass weeds. Uh, many of our premixed products do offer do offer that type of um, program in them. Eichley says producers will definitely want to scout fields within three to four weeks of the pre-emergence herbicide application and planning to see what kind of weeds are coming up. Now, if it's a, a broad diversity, if we have glyphosate-resistant crop planted in there, we do want to make sure we have glyphosate in the tank, and it will help clean up a lot of those miscellaneous weeds. Uh, especially a lot of our grasses, we can still control with, with glyphosate up here. Um, it, it's, it's where we get into those tougher weeds. If you had, say, some water hemp mixed in with uh, with grasses and, and some other weeds that we don't care so much about because we can easily control them, that's when we want to be on top of our identification game. If we don't know what we're going into, we start with a, a good pre-emergence herbicide, but we need to know what we're spraying when we do spray post-emergence that we have a, a good post-emergence program to cover our bases. Because there will be ample seed in the seed bank, Eichley said it's imperative that farmers don't shortcut their management. And we want to thank Rusty Haverson with KFGO Radio in Fargo, North Dakota for that audio. Chandler Equipment. For 51 years, Chandler Equipment has been manufacturing excellence. The finest quality in pull type and truck mount fertilizer lime spreaders and litter spreaders, fertilizer tenders, seed tenders, and litter conveyors. They also sell a full line of Raven Industries Precision Ag products. To find out more about the full Chandler product line and to find a Chandler Equipment dealer near you, visit ChandlerEquipment.net or give them a call at 800-243-3319. Well, next up this week on Fast Line Fast Track, it's maintenance season for producers across the country. While everything from combines to tractors are being prepared and repaired for 2021, it's a good time for growers to consider the lubricants they're using for their equipment. Using products that are tested and approved by OEM engineers means a peace of mind uh, that you're always getting optimal performance, max resale value, and minimal downtime. So this week, we wanted to bring in Joe Vonk, who's with Case IH Aftermarket Solutions, to talk about the importance of proper equipment maintenance and also about a new line of lubricants from Case IH, including Hytran Premium Hydraulic Transmission Oil, which can help extend equipment longevity and boost a producer's bottom line. And let's be honest, that's something every producer is trying diligently to do these days and joe welcome into fast line fast track hey brent thanks for having me glad to be here so let's start out this week talking about proper maintenance procedures what are good lubrication practices for equipment owners to follow and why is it important to do annual maintenance and follow the recommended service intervals you know recommended change intervals are based on what's been written in the operator's manual and it's extremely important that customers and producers follow these recommendations based on engineering support and understanding what 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 goes into each of these machines and, and in climates with significant swings in temperature during the seasons hydraulic oils that sit idle during those times of low use must absorb moisture and condensation and then they also retain any contamination so it's important to change those hydraulic oils after these recommended intervals and then with long change intervals on the new tier 4b engines you know engines that are heavily loaded or have many cold startups it's helpful to change the oil filter in the middle of the, the oil's 600-hour life. And an engine that is continuously heavily loaded will have more combustion gases that are pushed through the crankcases blow-by. These blow-by combustion gases will de deposit contaminants into the engine oil, 
which is then ultimately captured by the oil filter. Therefore, the oil filter can become nearly full before the 600 oil change interval. Um, I would recommend considering full synthetic engine oils or hydraulic oils for these challenging applications and wide temperature ranges. Um, they will allow easier starting, better protection against the extreme cold um, and hot temperatures. And when regular service intervals are missed, it could result in compromised performance and in, in, in an engine failure and downtime when you need your equipment most. Without the proper lubrication, wear parts will need to be replaced sooner than expected after their design lives. You know, for example, bearings, chains, bushings. And without proper lubrication, a wear part will fail quickly and cause, you know, significant damage before it's discovered, meaning large repair costs. So that's where Case IH Aftermarket Solutions comes into play. What's new for Case IH customers in 2021? We're, we're extremely excited to celebrate this with our Case IH customers for 2021. We're proud to be launching one of our most advanced portfolios ever, specifically engineered for the success of our customers and their Case IH equipment. So Joe, what's different about this line of lubricants and what can producers expect from them? You know, our customers have come to expect a leading performance and efficiency from our genuine lubricants, and that certainly isn't changing. What we're offering is a new line and, and key formulation improvements like better shift quality in our high trend premium. We're also delivering greater flexibility with convenient and consistent bulk delivery options. And of course, customers will notice a new sleeker look with the packaging that better aligns with the performance these products will deliver. So take me behind the scenes. What kind of work goes into delivering these Case IH lubricants? These new line of lubricants is a result of vigorous bench tests, screening and rig tests um, that go into each and every each and every one of our uh, lubricants in our portfolio. Um, our Case IH engineers have put significant amount of time and effort into testing this new line and ensuring they're delivering nothing but the best for our customers and equipment. So I know there are a lot of options out there, Joe. What are the benefits to using OEM fluids? You know, genuine lubricants that are engineered for the performance of your equipment can help increase the lifetime of your equipment, increase the maintenance intervals, lower the risk of equipment failures, and overall promote efficiency and performance of your machine. You know, put it simply, there's no other lubricants that are 100% backed, proven and tested by Case IH or Case IH equipment. Only our fluids bear the mat spec, which is material standard specification, meaning only they meet the rigorous standards set forth by our engineers. The ROI benefits with the support of your dealer and warranty add up to, to uh, a clear choice for our Case IH and, and, and operators. So I know, Joe, it's the nature of farmers to want to get in there and work on everything themselves. But what is the value of working with a dealer for lubricant needs and also for maintenance? You know, our dealers are factory trained. Technicians are factory trained. They are the experts. They know the your machines inside and out. They are the only source for the parts and fluids specifically designed tested and proven for maximum performance for your Case IH equipment. So folks want to check out this new portfolio of lubricants from Case IH. Where can they go to do that? You can head to mycnhistore.com to learn more or contact your local Case IH dealer. All right. Well, I'll tell you what, some exciting stuff here. And Joe, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Thanks. I appreciate it, Brent. World Ag Expo Online is not just one week. We'll be here all year long with new information, seminars, links to exhibitors, and more. Mark your calendar to make sure you visit the show website every month. Want to get monthly reminders of updated news and information? Go to worldagexpo.org to sign up for the email newsletter. More than 600 online exhibitors coming from 48 states and 65 countries. Attendance is free for the online show throughout 2021. Just go to worldagexpo.org.
Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, before the close of this century, 11 billion people on our planet will need to eat 33 billion meals per day. Let that sink in for a moment. Feeding the world as the population gets bigger and resources become more scarce requires new types of sustainable agriculture solutions. And the folks at UPL have been working hard creating holistic, integrated strategies for developing those solutions. And today I wanted to bring in Craig Breckis, the business unit head for UPL North America, to discuss the company's approach. Craig, Welcome in to Fast Line Fast Track. Oh, thank you, Brent, and uh, thank you for uh, inviting me to join you today. Well, UPL is the fifth largest global agriculture solutions company. They've got 25 R&D facilities, 44 manufacturing facilities, and over 1,200, almost 1,300 product formulations. And their portfolio consists of biologicals and traditional crop protection solutions with more than 13,600 registrations. And before we wade in too deep, Craig, if you would give us an overview of UPL North America. Um, sure. So um, UPL, I mean, traditionally, I think that most people would have saw us as a post-patent player. You know, that's been our roots for 50 years. This past year, we celebrated our 50th anniversary. Um, it was started by Mr. and Mrs. Shroff at that time back in India. And uh, today we've grown, like you said, to a $5 billion player, number fifth in the industry. And it's, it's, it's really, a, we're a company that's changing quite a bit, especially over those last um, really 18 months. And it stems around um, the purpose of open egg, you know, for us as an organization. And, and traditionally, like I said, you would have saw us, you know, in that space around bringing generic products. Today, we're evolving to something much more around you know, food production and sustainability in food production, which is which is very exciting for us as an organization. It's it's much different than where we've been in the past, where we're going, you know, is is much more around becoming a stronger agriculture player and being involved in a lot more in food production. Well, you mentioned open ag, and I wanted to get into that because that's something that's really neat and really innovative. Uh, you're looking at an agriculture network that feeds sustainable growth for all, and, and you're looking, from what I understand, to change the game to make every single food product more sustainable. Yeah, so if you, if you think about the purpose, you think about things like uh, open collaboration, open innovation, open markets. I think that our approach really is different and unique in the marketplace in the sense that we're, we're certainly about partnerships. You know, we know that we can't do it all. And if, if you look at, you know, traditionally the way that companies have looked at this, it's, it's around discovery research. And then they spend years developing that product and entering into the marketplace once it's registered, sometimes 10 years later. And for us, this is, we see this as a, a very dynamic market. I, I certainly tell my children all the time, it's an exciting space to be a part of today. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody sees the, the changing environment in food production, and we certainly see it as an exciting space to be. And it is about finding those partnerships and those relationships that allow us to meet the needs of growers and ultimately for building a, a better sustainable food food source for the marketplace. Like you talked about, you know, the, the amount of people that we're going to have to feed over the next 25 years is significant. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's what we feel is our opportunity because we're so unique to that versus what other players are doing. 
Well, something else that I think makes you unique within the industry, a couple of the key words here that I wanted to focus on are agility and responsiveness. And I know that's something that uh, uh, really seems to serve you well in that research and development space. Yeah. So when you look at the structure, okay, so we have a traditional business that's post-patent and it's, you know, our manufacturing strength is second to none in the, in the marketplace. And we'll always have that competitive advantage. And I think it's important because it gives you a lot of resources to do the things that you want to do in the market. But the second pillar is around differentiation and sustainability. And that's, you know, differentiating, bringing value to growers and how they grow on their farms, food production better more efficiently, um, quality, et cetera. And also around sustainability, it's around technologies and biologicals and doing things differently, which is around what the consumer's looking for today. It's looking for something different um, than what we've had in the past. And so we have to separate those two pillars. And then so specifically, when we look at the differentiated and sustainable portfolios, that requires a much different level of investment for a company of our size. Like I said earlier, other companies will spend $100 million bringing a product to market. Because we're not doing that, because we're not in basic discovery, we that frees up those resources to, to look at it differently. So today, we're investing in marketing. We're investing in people in the marketplace that understand growers' needs, that understand clearly what the marketplace is looking for today. And then we're going out on the backside in the front end and looking for innovative entrepreneurial type companies that have that technology today that meets the needs of what the marketplace is looking for. And then it's bridging those two, investing in those partnerships and those relationships that bring it, you know, to marketplace in the next couple of years. And I, I think when you look at the way we're investing our dollars, that's, that's a competitive advantage, and that's certainly unique in the industry today. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the key strategies is the location for your operations. The Open Ag Center and Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, is really in a sweet spot there where uh, you've got uh, more than 50 plant tech companies, nine digital ag tech companies, and 20 animal health companies, all in that Research Triangle Ag Cluster and uh, all of them uh, marching in that same basic direction, which is trying to uh, look at the big picture in, in terms of trying to, to serve the market and, and trying to meet the, the glowing, the growing, I should say, uh, global demand. Yeah, like a lot of those companies, I, I mean, it's a great hub. I would say, Brent, I'm, a, I'm 100% with you. Like it's, it continues to get a more and more important agriculture hub. Um, so it's a great spot to be first. Second of all, a lot of those companies that you, you're talking about, they have the technology, but they don't have the means to bring it to market. You know, they haven't established those partnerships. And so the, the innovation's there. And so we're right in the middle of it, to your point. In, in our Open Ag Center today, we picked a great spot. Um, it, it's uh, it's uh, given us the ability to talk to a lot of different companies. They're approaching us. We have, you know, we're very open in that we're about the strategy of partnerships. So they're coming to us. And, you know, it's, it's very easy for us to develop those partnerships. And I think the thing about the Open Egg Center and that investment is to have the, the access to people that can vet these technologies, the access to um, the research and development to quickly look through it. That that facility is going to be a competitive advantage for us. I mean, we opened it six months ago. It's already significant in how we're approaching this. 
And we're going to be able to quickly look at these technologies to see if they meet the needs that uh, that our growers and our retailers and our and consumers today need in a changing environment. And you know, I, I you know, it's it's uh, it's it's pretty exciting to see how that's evolving so quickly. When you look at the agriculture landscape, what are some of the biggest hurdles or challenges before you? Um, you know, it's it's cha- it's changing quickly. I think the world's changing quickly in terms of how we're approaching the marketplace. I think there's some significant challenges around um, food production. You know, for say around residues, those type of things that you know we have to we have to move quickly with the times. I, I think that that's the thing for us is to transition from that uh, traditional post patent player to really move towards investing in the future um, and making that transition and having the mind space change with our organization and understanding that what's required to run a business and post patent is very different than what's required to run a business around differentiation. And I think the, the challenge is to do both well. Yeah. You know, I, I think that a lot of organizations, you know, have a tough time um, transitioning and, you know, you have it's it's hard to have two different core strategies in the marketplace and do them well, but they actually feed off of each other. Like at the end of the day, having strength around a technology that you post patent play, and then having that ability to man- manufacture it effectively, but then having the know-how, know-how and the expertise to differentiate that and to create something new out of that, I think is exciting for us. And you know, if we do this well it's going to set us apart. And for me, that's what the North American strategy is about. We know globally that, you know, we have strength in post-patent manufacturers. We have strength in bringing technologies to the marketplace. It's up to me to articulate that well into the marketplace so that we have a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. And what is it about this that gets you excited, gets you out of bed and gets you fired up about doing this job every day? Well, first of all, I'm a farm boy. So, you know, I, I think for me, I've, I've spent my life in this industry and, you know, I'm so passionate about it. I don't find it, I, I don't find it hard to go to work every day. I'll tell you that. And so growing up in this space, I see what growers have done for food production for my whole lifetime. And it's such an inter- industry of integrity. Yeah. It's such an industry that's forward looking. And, you know, I think that we're about to go through a major evolution. And, you know, when you think about agriculture today and where it's about to go to in the next 10 years, I mean, food production is about to, to explode, yeah. right, in this industry. And so, you know, I, I'm just happy to be a part of it. I think we're going to see something pretty amazing over the next next 10 years. And, you know, it's been a part of my life for so many years. It's It's hard not to be passionate about it. So this is Virtual Commodity Classic Week, and we're disappointed to not be together in person in San Antonio, but that's not slowing UPL from highlighting some of its latest developments. Uh, If you could, tell folks who are going to attend the virtual show what they can expect to see from UPL. Well, I mean, at this point, we have some pretty exciting technologies that we're launching this year that kind of showcase, you know, where we're going as a company. So, you know, come and talk to us about things like our Amiflex herbicide, which is about a new uh, iGro uh, sorghum technology that we're launching with Advanta Seed. We're going to be talking about Tapera Plus, which is a new fungicide, insecticide. 
um, technology for early um, uh, control in, in uh, row crops. And then we're also going to be talking about, you know, VPL, which is a new liquid seed treatment in uh, peanuts. So, I mean, we have some pretty exciting technologies already hitting the marketplace that are just going to showcase where we're going around differentiation, what I've talked about today. Well, for anyone interested in learning about UPL and its offerings, where can they go to do that? Um, I think I would start for sure. If you, if you have a local retailer, you can talk to them and they'll connect you with our local representative. You can go to our, our website, um, UPL in North America. And uh, there's certainly a connection there to our open egg center. If you want to have an idea, if you want to talk to us about new technologies, and you can also get involved, get connected to your local representative. Excellent. Well, Craig, we sure do appreciate you taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track, and we welcome you to come back anytime you want to share the latest developments with UPL. Great. Thank you, Brent. Enjoyed enjoyed talking to you today. And sticking with UPL, next we want to welcome back to the program Lynn Justison, who's the Technical Services Manager, to talk about one of the company's agronomic solutions, taking in-furrow seed protection to the next level. And Lynn, welcome back to Fast Line Fast Track. Uh, thanks for having us, uh, have, having myself and UPL back. We, uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to visit today. How have you been? A lot has happened since the last time we talked to you. You were just getting ready to make the, the changeover from Arista to, to UPL, and uh, you guys have covered a lot of ground over the past couple of years. Yeah, we have. We've, we've taken, and um, you know, UPL-wise, uh, as a company put together now, um, you know, we represent 83 different AIs in North America. Of with that, there's about 186 or so um, separate brands within that, and way or 181 separate brands, and about 270 of those separate SKUs. So, as you look at us, what we do, and and what who UPLs now that those two are together, we were just starting through a couple of years ago. We're now the you know we have the largest AIs. There's not anybody that has a more broader AI portfolio than we do in North in North America, let alone and, and more than likely the world. Um, the interesting part is, is, you know, we've been through that, right? And it's, uh, it's been a couple years and it, right, honestly, it takes about that amount of time to get through everything, to get all the brands moved around and, and kind of figure out who we are and what we are and what we want to do. And, uh, um, you know, as you look at that and, and we think of that combination and we look at that now, UPL is a company is the number five crop protection company in the world. Um, and the, 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 the good and the bad of that is, is there's a lot of folks that haven't heard of us or don't know who we are. They might know some products and honestly, that's probably the most important thing. Um, you know, we're the, the world leader, uh, leading, uh, leading producer of Colethodum. Um, we're second, um, uh, in glufosinate. Um, uh, we're the largest producer of Metribuzin, um, in North America. I mean, the list goes on and on, but we, we really do have a very solid, very broad portfolio. We've put together a, a team that, that, you know, we do a fair amount of post-patent things. But as you look at things from our tech services side and the group I manage, uh, last time we spoke, there was two of us in that area. There's now five. Wow. So we've, we, we've uh, and that's just the tech service. We have developmental folks filled in every spot to boot and adding technical people as, as well. You know, there's some tremendous examples of things we found, um, you know, we're, we brought that one. You talked about the Inferro thing with the Tapera Plus HD. Back the last time we spoke, Tapera Plus was was kind of up and running, and that was kind of the second real big year of that. And uh, and we've had great successes and with that. But we went back to our users, um, both the growers and the retailers, and, and we heard some things from them that they said, you know what, 
we, we'd like you to tweak this a little bit. And we listened. Um, you know, they asked, we'd like some more bifenthrin. We'd like some more seed protectant. Um, the other thing is, as almost any grower do, if uh, if five ounces will work, they would rather spray five ounces as opposed to nine, right? Yeah, yeah. Or 10 or whatever that number is. And they asked us to see if we could lower the rate a little bit. And we went back to the drawing board and were able to, quite honestly, we, we accomplished both of them. And we, we've added some mixability and so, some stability in mix that, that we were industry best before and i think we just upped our own game with it so it's uh as a company and the broad reaching in the spectrum that we're at this is a, a exciting time for us um we have the ability to take a multiple products and and uh, much like the Depera plus hd and take those things and take multiple things and, and try and figure out how to make them just a little bit better or maybe how they fit into a marketplace more precisely. Well, I'll tell you what, spring is just about here, and it's time to start thinking about a new growing season, which also means thinking about fungicide and insecticide. As farmers do this, what kind of questions should they be asking, and what should they be considering? Yeah, I think there's really a couple, three key things. I think um, as we go into the spring, um, we went from a dry spring to you know, we just we just melted off here in the eastern part of Nebraska. We just melted off over 36 inches of snow the last two weeks. So we've went from a pretty dry soil profile to pretty doggone wet. Now with that, the, there's much of this, much of the much of the Midwest. There was enough enough snow cover went on when we were in that deep freeze a couple weeks ago. Um, we didn't really freeze the ground out that hard. So we have some wet soils that I'm going to suspect are probably compacted a little more than than we would like. Um, and then, um, you know, we're going into, in some places, some really high residue management, possibly issue areas, um, you know, um, just because we didn't get as much moisture in the fall and we don't get as much natural breakdown with that. So I think that's one of the key considerations. I think one consideration that you always go try and go back to agronomy 101 is how do we, what, or what can we do? What can we do to ensure that every plant comes up as evenly as possible? And we get as many up as we can. We give that plant the best chance we can. The in-furrow um, fertilizer market, uh, starter fertilizer market is fantastic for that. I think it gives you spot on at light rates. We, we can see some really, really nice responses because everything is right exactly where the plant needs. And then you you can couple something in like a Tapera Plus HD into that. Um, you put that in there and now only, not only do you have all the nutrients you need, you also are giving you protection from many, many pests and secondary pests, whether it's seed corn, maggot, wireworm, some of those type kind of typical type folks in there and those, those pests in there, and we get protection with that. We're also giving you early season disease control that'll last out to a hundred days. And I think that sets you up for what am I going to do at BT? What do I need to do to get to the finish line? But we're talking about getting a plant up getting it up as rigorous as we can. We see it about a thousand to 1200 increase in plant stand when we use something like a Terra plus HD. So we get a few more up, we get them up more even, and we're, we're giving you some added protection all the way out to about the time at BT when it's time to start making decisions on what do we do next. And from what I understand, early returns show a nice increase in corn yield uh, from folks that are using Terra plus HD. Yeah, uh, so our early our early cornels with that, you know, we're showing in that in right around that eight range. Um, when we we look at that eight eight bushels per acre, um, that's a really nice return on investment. Um, that's a forty dollar you know return at today or nearly at today's corn pricing is is nearly a forty dollar return on uh, forty dollar return. Um, the investment on that is going to be substantially less than that. You'll be able to get a two or three to one or probably even better return on investment with that. Um, and, and the nice part of that is, is not only really we have that average, but that average is at nearly a 90 percent 
um, uh, success ratio that we see and that we see a response and it averages that eight. So that's some really, really solid data, you know, and all that data is replicated trials across the Midwest. If folks want to check that out and, and investigate the products you have there, where can they go to do that? Uh, you can go to your local retailer, ask them about any of the Tapera brands. The other place they can go to is uh, they can go out to uh, go to the UPL website, UPL North America website, um, find a rep selector, or if uh, if they get lucky enough and they ask a question, it might get forwarded up to one of me or either myself or one of our tech service guys to be able to help you out. Well, that would be lucky. No, oh, I think so. I feel that way anyway. Well, I would agree. And Lynn, thank you so much for taking the time to join us again on Fast Line Fast Track. And I hope you come back anytime you want to share the latest insights from UPL. Glad to do it. Thank you. Have a great afternoon. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, is it time to sell that old corn or soybean crop? Jesse Allen is here to cover that on this week's Market Talk. Jesse. Well, thank you very much, Brent, for having me back for another week here on Fast Line Fast Track with this Market Talk update. I recently sat down with Brian Split from agmarket.net on a uh, episode of Market Talk last week. And first I asked Brian about uh, old crop corn and soybeans because he mentioned during part of our broadcast uh, about how we are looking for corn specifically at this point and how the trade is looking for corn. And I asked him if the uh, producer was hanging on to any old crop at this point, would it be smart to sell it? Here's his answer. I suppose the, the question is, if you haven't sold it yet, why would you sell it right now? Um, and so I think the producer that does still have physical bushels um, in their control, they're probably waiting until we get closer to the summer weather market. Uh, I was just looking at a map of some of the year over year production, uh, you know, areas in the country that produced more corn than last year areas in the country that produced less corn than last year. And Iowa is going to be a really interesting story as we get into summertime uh, because we had severe uh, reductions in production year over year throughout most of the state. So basis could be uh, really strong in, in Iowa as we get towards the back end of this crop year. Um, so I, I think the producer that still has physical bushels has weathered a, a lot of the storm and probably says, hey, as long as corn is trading above a certain price, I'm just going to let let it go and, and see what happens. Uh, and, and I don't know that I disagree with that at this point. We shifted our discussion over to new crop corn and soybeans and whether or not producers should look to maybe lock a floor in underneath the market right now to protect some of that profit. And here was Brian's response. So I think the, the conversation that a producer needs to have internally right now is in conjunction with their crop insurance. And so uh, depending on where you are geographically and what type of crop insurance product you're gonna be using, uh, I know a lot of the producers that we're working with uh, are, are looking at 85% uh, on their crop insurance, which means that there's 15% of their APH bushels uh, have nothing against it. And so that would be, I think, where the producer would wanna focus in the short term is looking at those, those bushels uh, above and beyond what is, what is protected by their crop insurance uh, so that would be that 15% uh, and maybe some of the overage bushels that, that you will probably grow above your APH. Uh, you might want to look at those bushels as well. Um, but until we really start to see new elevations and distance ourselves from the spring averages, uh, I'm going to try to be patient on that other 85%. And then what might happen, and let's say corn, you know, new crop goes to 550, for example, in the account, we may just want to use options to protect ourselves from whatever point 
down to 460 being 459 being the spring average. Uh, because if we do see weakness down the road and we're below 459, um, we can make the difference in the hedge account from wherever we want to protect it down to that level and then let the insurance product take over from there. So we only need to hedge a portion of the move and then let crop insurance take over from there. But again, I'm waiting for higher elevations until we have those conversations. We also have a March WASD report coming up here this week, and I asked Brian his early thoughts on what he is hearing about what that report could look like, considering last month many thought that USDA kind of kicked the can down the road. Well, I know the USDA um, did make some adjustments in, in the right direction on, on soybeans on the last report. Our ending stocks are, are very tight on paper right now, and uh, we are still looking for ending stocks to drop uh, as we get uh, towards the back end of the marketing year. Uh, and honestly, if, if we see some cancellations from some of the purchases that have already been made, uh, that'll likely just mean that we'll import less down the road. So I don't know that unless we see some mass cancellations on very high uh, bushel amounts, I don't know that that's really going to impact the balance sheet in the long run here. Uh, so we think we still have evidence based on the shipments of soybeans that uh, the export number could be inched higher, whether the USDA does that or not. Good question. We are getting into a quarterly stock report at the end of the month with the acreage intentions. Um, so knowing that they may kick the can and, and wait to see how the stock numbers come out and then use the, uh, the April WASDE report to rectify those numbers would be my, my personal guess. Uh, on the corn side of things, uh, we still are looking at, a, at an export program in front of us that I think is going to be very strong. And uh, we still believe internally at agmarket.net that we're going to see additional export demand uh, into the balance sheets and, and still looking for some tighter numbers as we get uh, closer to the end of the marketing year. So right now we're thinking closer to 1.3 billion bushels down from the 1.5-ish that we're at right now. Um, and again, that is going to assume that we see a strong export program through spring. And part of that will be because of uh, potential losses in South America. Um, in 2016, we had the Safrina corn crop in Brazil uh, underperformed. And because of that, we had a very strong export program through the remainder of the marketing year. So Again, that's Brian Split with agmarket.net. Joining me on a recent uh, edition of the Market Talk podcast, which you can find online at markettalkag.com and via all streaming platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, and more. For Fast Line Fast Track in Nashville, I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, you can find Jesse's daily market updates at markettalkag.com. Again, markettalkag.com. And you can find him by searching Market Talk on Facebook. He also appears on the American Ag Network. And you can hear him host Your Ag Today weekday mornings about 6.50 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Satellite Radio, Rural Radio Channel 147. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, it's time for another installment of Bushels and Cents with our buddy, the Hot Rod Farmer, Ray Bohax. Don't forget, you can check out all of his great multimedia content at FarmMachineryDigest.com. Welcome to Bushels and Cents, a weekly podcast from the Farm Machinery Digest. I am your host, Ray Bohax, the Hot Rod Farmer. And never forget, it is not what you make, but what you keep that counts. There are many different pumps found on the farm and the equipment used, so it is important for you to learn their language. A pump will communicate to you with a groan, whine, vibration, chattering, or pressure fluctuation. When this occurs, it is telling you that it is experiencing destructive cavitation. 
it is the result of either an inlet or outlet restriction or being run at too high a speed. Research the replacement cost for some of your pumps. Maybe then you will pay attention to its cry for help before it is too late. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Visit FarmMachineryDigest.com where steel and soil meet. And don't forget, Rainbow Hacks has launched Farm Machinery Digest Radio on Sirius XM Rural Radio Channel 147. It airs each Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern and again on Sundays at 6 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you go and give him a listen. Well, next up on Fast Line Fast Track, we head on over to the musical side of the house where this week's special guest is making a return appearance to the show. Dawn Anita is a traditional country music singer-songwriter who just continues to crank out music true to her western roots. She's straight out of Oklahoma and always a delight to chat with. Dawn Anita, welcome back to Fast Line Fast Track. Well, thank you. I am so excited, Brent. I've been looking forward to this so very much. I appreciate it. Well, we had Donna Nita on the podcast on episode 49 in April 2020, right at the outset of the pandemic. At that time, we got into your family background and your musical roots. But for the benefit of those who haven't had a chance to listen to that, take us back to growing up in Oklahoma and how country music and the cowboy lifestyle influenced you. Well, you know, I'm, I am an Oklahoma native and I was uh, born and raised here. Of course, I lived in Nashville a little while, and but we always came back to the ranch in southern Oklahoma, and, and uh, I've enjoyed music all of my life, and I come from a musical family, and uh, I had a great childhood. I used to ride the eastern Oklahoma hills on my little pinto pony, and then when I, the people would come from miles around to play music, and then later on in high school, I joined uh, a band and started singing, and that's, that. It, you know, my mom and dad, my sister, my brother, and even my grandparents before that, you know, they were all on both sides, were all musically talented. And you all used to have some pretty legendary Saturday nights around those parts, huh? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it was a wonderful time, and as you know, uh, we lost Joe Diffie, but he was my nephew, and, and he was an exceptional talent, and we were so sad to lose him, but his he has a legacy of music that will live on. Well, we'll definitely get into talking about that a bit later on, but an interesting part of your story is that you ran away at age 16 to get married, and you're still married to that same guy, your husband, Jerry, and today... I, I don't know that uh, you couldn't have done w w what you did w without having him be as supportive as he was. Well, I I'm telling you, I couldn't have done it without him. It's as if he's, he doesn't sing, he doesn't play an instrument, but he takes me everywhere and is a part of my career. And I couldn't have done all this music if I hadn't had him. And he's always been very supportive. Well, let's say we kick things off this week with a song from Don Anita from a new album, Forever Country. This is called Cheating List on Fast Line Fast Track. Well, here it is, 2 a.m., and you just walked through the door, telling me you had to work late again. Well, I've heard that line before. Reasons, excuses, that's all I ever hear from your lips. Well, I'm tired of those lies and alibis I'm gonna write you up a cheating list I'm writing you up a cheating list Of lies you 
through all these musical adventures over the years it has to have been uh, uh, just that just an adventure doing all the things that you've gotten to do and see in your career well it absolutely has we've traveled from uh, all over the, everywhere but we lived for in our first years up in seattle and moved to idaho and then back to oklahoma and then back to washington and we lived in a little remote log cabin and uh it's snowing here in Oklahoma, and we are really snowbound, but it I, it doesn't compare to when we lived in the mountains in Idaho in mm. that little log cabin. Jerry would shovel a path to the outhouse that was over six feet tall. Uh, and today you got him brushing snow off the uh, off the satellite dish. Yes, we did, and I, and my picture still won't come through. But I want to <laughs> tell you something, Brent. Uh, we live so far out here in the country that you go to the end of the road and then you go about a quarter of a mile further and turn right or left. Uh, left, you get lost. And you'll see uh, see our house down in there. <laughs> and that's always been an important thing to you, hasn't it? Being out in the country and being connected to that. Uh, you know, you grew up on a ranch. You still live on a ranch. That, that's a big part of who you are. Yes, I've always, my daddy was a cowboy, and I was his little cowgirl, and I was the one who always checked the cattle and helped him, and, you know, my brother and my sister didn't care much about it, but I've all, I always loved it. Uh-huh. And that's been a huge inspiration for your music over the years. Yes, it has. It is really, uh, a lot of songs came out of all of that, and of course, I'm, I'm, you know, real country, pure country all the way. So who were some of your musical influences as you were coming up? 
Well, of course, I loved, uh, I don't even know if, I, surely your people know about Kitty Wells. I grew up listening to her and to Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline, Tammy Wynette, and of course, George Jones, Lefty Frizzell, Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard. I love all of those people. All the good ones. Yes. <laughs> So uh, along the way, you know, you talk about family being so important to you. Uh, you uh, from what I understand, there were quite a few times uh, throughout your career when, when opportunity came calling, including one time when uh, RCA Records came, came knocking after uh, a recording you had done. But uh, you, you always opted to put family first. Well, I did, it, and uh, it was hard to turn it down, but my, our kids, we have a, a son and a daughter, Jerry, Don, and Priscilla, who we call Pumpkin, and they were just getting into everything, and there was just no way that I could uh, leave them, and when the A&R man from RCA told me I'd be on the road five and six nights a week, well, I just... I just couldn't let that be because I wanted to give my kids a hug every day. Uh-huh. And uh, it seems to be the right choice. It seems to have worked out really well for you. I think it has. But, you know, I never gave up on music. I, I started writing songs. And, of course, I performed uh, with different bands, one of which was uh, with the Texas Playboys. And uh, I had performed with a lot of people at the time, Johnny Rodriguez and Hank Thompson, Bill Mack. Uh, there's a whole long list. And you, you mentioned that about the Texas Playboys, you know, of course, of Bob Wills and Tommy Duncan fame. You spent five years performing uh, with those folks. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, let me tell you how that really came about. Uh, my husband at the time knew a fella who was just uh, loved country music, and he knew Bob Wills real well, and he took me down to Fort Worth to the Stagecoach Inn on a Saturday night. And Bob Wills was ill and wasn't there, and I didn't want to disappoint my friend. Of course, this was the hottest club in Fort Worth at the time. And... Uh, so anyway, you just don't ask to sit in on, on those kind of things. But I did when the guitar player got down. I said, "My, I'm from Oklahoma and I'm a singer and my friend knows Bob Wills and he wants to hear me sing. And, and this guitar player named Johnny Patterson looked down at me and he said, okay, honey, I'll be calling you up. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. He did. I, I sang, hey, good looking. And am I fool number one? And the dance floor was completely full. And they all turned around when I started singing and just stopped and listened the whole time. And when I got through with my first song, he said, sing another one. <laughs> so I did. And he's the one that recorded the very first song that led me uh, to RCA, which was called Loneliness is a poor excuse for love. And I understand that song also got on the uh, legendary WBAP out of Fort Worth there and got a little airplay as well. Oh, absolutely. Bill Mack had that show, you know, The Midnight Cowboy. And uh, I was on his show several times. And I was on the, uh, it got on the daytime playlist. Hmm. And Jerry was, I was in the kitchen washing dishes 
and Jerry he worked on the ranch, and he came running and jumped the fence and said, turn on the radio, Donnie, you're on right now. <laughs> wow. What, what was that feeling like to hear that? <laughs> Bill Mack was a great person uh, to work with, and the Playboys, Leon Roush and Johnny Patterson, and, uh, you know, they were great. They were great people. Well, you had mentioned uh, earlier Johnny Rodriguez and, of course, Hank Thompson, also Red Stegall, uh, Mel Tillis, Johnny Russell, Charlie Pride, Willie Nelson, Gene Watson, Tanya Tucker. Uh, of those names, which are some of the most memorable performances uh, that you had that, that stood out to you? Well, I want to tell you about Johnny Rodriguez. You know, he was he was a hot fella at the time, and we were singing at Panther Hall. And he was kind of a shy guy. And he got on stage, and I'm telling you, now, maybe I shouldn't tell you, but the girls would take off their panties and throw them up on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's something that I, I really never forgot. And then I performed with Tanya, and Tanya was just a young girl, and she did the exact set when she saw me in or Ardmore, Oklahoma. She was at the uh, rodeo and I was at uh, the club and she saw me and she stood on the bandstand and listened to every song I did. And when I performed with her, she sang my whole set. I always kept my sets uh, that I did, you know, and she sang my whole set and ended with Delta Dawn. Oh, wow. So I had to come up with some new songs. And <laughs> we talked about the, uh, the, the folks you did get to perform with. Is there anybody that you didn't get a chance to perform with that uh, you sure wish you could have? Well, I, there were so many great artists and, uh, I did perform with Tom T. Hall. Uh, he, he was at, down in Longview, Texas. Well, there were so many of them, but, I wish that I could have performed with Loretta uh -huh. and Conway. You know, we talk about notable artists. Another artist you proudly claim is your nephew, the late great country music superstar Joe Diffie, who unfortunately became one of the first notable Americans to pass away as a result of complications linked to COVID-19. You came on the show a couple weeks later and shared a great duet the two of you did together before he was a major label artist called Sweet Dreams Die Hard, which is part of a five-song EP the two of you did together. It's been nominated for an Academy of Western Artists Pure Country Album of the Year Award. Of course, you were the AWA's Western Female Vocalist of the Year in 2018. What would it mean to you to win an award for that album of duets with Joe? That would be so awesome. And I want to tell you about the songwriter, Gary Sefton, who I've, I've known all these years, and he is a fabulous songwriter. And uh, we were trying to put some songs together, and we had been performing in the clubs. And I said, I've got a song that we've just got to do. And immediately when he heard it, he said, that's a hit song. And so this was before his career had started, you know, before he got a contract. And we had a interest with Warner Brothers, and so we took we went to Nashville, and I introduced him in, around and whatever. But we never we almost got a deal, but we never did at that point. And then when he went to Nashville, uh, just shortly thereafter, well, he called me and about 
oh, six months, and he said, I'm coming home, Aunt Donita, because nobody will talk to me. Nice. I said, Joey, and I call him Joey. I said, Joey, don't do that. You you let me try to call some. You know, I had a few connections. And I said, let me call some people. And I called a few of my connections, and one of them was with Warner Brothers, Randy Talmadge. And I said, Joey's in Nashville, and he said he's tried to call you several times, and he's trying to make a go of it on his own. And Randy says, well, you just, I'll help him all I can. And he did. He introduced him around to a lot of other songwriters, and that's when he started making all those demos, uh-huh. which led to his contract. He was a fabulous talent. Well, he sure made the most of the opportunity, didn't he? Oh, I'm telling you, he I, he was, I don't think anybody had his vocal cords. He was absolutely awesome, and I am so proud of the song that songs that we did together. Well, for anybody listening, make sure you go, uh, you can catch that on YouTube. Uh, look up that song here and, and make sure you go give it a listen here because it's a really special song. Uh, another artist that you had a chance to work with, uh, one that uh, you, you also had a hand in uh, in raising was uh, your son, Jerry Don. And uh, you guys put yeah. out some music <clears throat> together and uh, that was nominated for AMA's Best Pure Country uh, duo award. And what, what was that experience like to be able to, uh, to record with him? Well, when we lived uh, temporarily in Nashville, you know, our son was always musical and played the guitar, but he never really did try to get on stage or do anything much with me like Joey did. But anyway, when he came, we had this little four track cassette recorder and I said, Jerry Don, I've got, I've written some songs and I'd like you to put your voice down. And when I heard him come through that cassette recorder and his daddy heard him, he said, we got to get you in the studio. <laughs> he, he has such a unique sound. Well, let's check it out now. This is the Plumleys, Don Anita and Jerry Don with It's Time to Shine on Fast Line Fast Track. Make the right decision all those years ago. If I had taken that path to stardom, we'd have riches untold. But there is one thing we couldn't have if I'd been away, I couldn't have given. To share my childhood days There's one thing I'd like to do for you Give back what you gave away So let's pack up our old guitars Head off to Nashville Cause mama you were a star back then And you're a star still and it's time to shine it's time to shine your light well you can wish and you can wait 
hesitate, but when the time is right, it's right, and it's time to shine. Let that feeling blow. Open up your heart and let it show. 'Cause it's time to shine. Had to wait for my son to grow up so he could sing with me. Well, Mama, your time has finally come. It's been a long climb up that hill, and Mama, your star is shining bright, and it always will. It's time to shine. It's time to shine your light. Well, you can wish and you can wait, you can stall and hesitate, but when the time is right, it's right. And it's time to shine. Let that feeling blow. And let it show, 'cause it's time to shine. Yeah, it's time to shine. An absolutely beautiful song there from Don Anita and her baby boy Jerry Don. Good stuff. <laughs> He, he he is something. I I love him dearly. Twenty seventeen, a big year for you, uh, Miss Senior Oklahoma. What was that whole experience like for you? Well, you know that was kind of out of my field. But my husband, we were sitting in Oklahoma City up there uh, at the VA, and he had there was a magazine there, and it had an ad in it that uh, the Miss Senior Oklahoma. And he said, you need to do that. And I said, oh, you know, Jerry, I'm not good at wearing formals and all those things. And uh, I'm such a country girl. And he said, well, you're good at singing, so why don't you do it? And I entered, and voila, I won. Just that easy, huh? <laughs> well, not really, but I, <laughs> I gave it my best shot, and it just happened to work. Well, something else you've gotten a chance to do over the past few years is poetry competitions. How did you get into those? Well, I have been. I'm, you know, when you're a songwriter uh, and you live out in the country and you're a country girl, there's always some kind of stories to tell, and some of them turn into songs and some of them turn into poems. Uh huh. How long have you been doing that? Well, my good friend Ronnie Bishop told me about the、uh, IWMA, and I had recorded some songs down through the years. And he said you need to join, and I did. And I put out a, an album called Down on Wild Horse Creek, and that was in 2017. And it just went really well.、Uh, in fact, that song Down on Wild Horse Creek. 
was nominated uh, in th- with three different organizations mm-hmm. as a, as the song of the year, and then my album was nominated. But but I won the uh, Western Artist of 2018. One other thing that's been important to you throughout your career is patriotism. And one of the great songs that you've released over the past few years is Allegiance to the Flag, which is an important song given the state of things today. Why did you feel compelled to write that song? Well, what I did is I woke up about 4 o'clock one morning, and all of the lyrics were in my head. And I punched Jerry and I said I've got to get up because this song is here and I just cannot get it out of my mind so I wrote down all the lyrics and of course the tune and the lyrics come together and I think it was just a gift that was given to me and uh, so I just decided it, I, I am very patriotic and I do love the, uh, our country and I've decided it was something that people needed to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what do you think about this when you you see you know so many people being so flippant about the national anthem about patriotism and and, and just the state of the country today well it really um is sad to me because our children are not being taught our background and there are so many it's really not a lot of the people's fault because they haven't been taught background and they don't know what this country was founded on and what it really stands for. And I am proud to be uh, an American. Well, anybody who knows anything about this show knows that we love patriotism and anything to do with the red, white, and blue. So we're going to share this one with you. This is Allegiance to the Flag, Don Anita on Fast Line, Fast Track. Oh, the message that 
fragile thing in our world today. I know that no one can ever take down the USA. From shore to shore, everywhere. That'll get your blood pumping. Well, I wanted to tell you also <clears throat> that my husband is a disabled vet, and he, we are both love the USA and very patriotic. For now, we want to talk about this new album. Forever Country is out now, 12 tracks on it, and all are pure country gold. Tell me about the inspiration for this album. Well, as you know, this last year has been so difficult for all musicians and people ha have not been able to really get their music out. They've been innovative and done a lot of things, but I had these songs that I recorded down through the years, and I told Jerry, I said, since I can't get in the studio, I'm going to put this collection together and see what it does and just see how my audience likes it. And I'm telling you, uh, the response has been really super great. And I appreciate all the fans and all the DJs and radio stations uh, who have decided they like this album and are playing it. Well, I tell you what, one of those songs on there, uh, never mind what could have been. Tell, tell us about the inspiration for that song. Well, you know, back when I, what we talked about, the contract for RCA, and um, I was driving to work. I also work as a legal secretary and uh, so I could pay for my music habit. And so anyway, I got that idea in my head and thought, well, you know, it could have been, I could have been a has-been and all of that, but never mind what could have been. And that has received so much good response. I'd say this is another song I want to share with people here. Uh, you, you got a nice little lyric video together for that, and I, I want to share that now. This is Never Mind What Could Have Been. I could have had fortune and fame, and everyone would have known my name. Yes, I think of all the many things I could have been. If I had made my mark way back when I could have been one of those who 
have reached the end of what could have been. But never mind what could have been. Never mind what would have been. Cause if it all had happened then, by now I'd just be a has-been. I could have been standing on that big stage with those bright lights shining in my face. Yes, I think. Of all the many ways it could have been But through the years I've made a lot of friends And I wouldn't trade the time I've shared with them Just for the pleasure of being the has-been I could have been But never mind what could have been Never By now I just be a has-been That's excellent. And the one thing that I know about you is that even after all these years in the business, you still love to be a creator and you, you still get those creative juices flowing. I absolutely do. It's uh, I'm in the process, actually, of working on a new album. Uh, it's more Western. And uh, I've got some tracks that are laid down already uh, in the studio and but the weather has stopped everything right now. But, you know, that's that's who I am. I believe that's what God placed me here to do. And uh, so I'm going to continue singing and writing and recording and being out there for my fans and hoping the DJs will keep playing my music. Well, I tell you what, if, uh, if what we've seen over the last month is any indication, I, I know that will be the case here. And I, I'm seeing a lot of great comments popping up here. So I know it's resonating with, with our audience here. And I, I know it's right in their wheelhouse. So, so that is a, a great testament to what you've been able to do. As an artist, what has been your favorite part of being a singer and a songwriter and a performer over the years? Being able to connect with my fans and audience. That is what puts me uh, on top of the world, so to speak, because I love people. Uh What what has been the biggest challenge in the business? Trying to write a good song. (laughs) 
my uh, I had a, a great teacher, Mr. Gary Sefton, and some other people, Ronnie Bishop, uh, that helped me along the way because initially, you know, I just sang and I I didn't know until I went to Nashville that hey, you got to have the right song. So, well, I always wrote, but it, they weren't something that I just you know always did. And then I had to perfect my craft and. So it was it was difficult down through the years, but I think I might have it now. <laughs> what was that experience like when you did go to Nashville? What what was that era of music like, and what was it like trying to make the right connections in the business at that time? Well, let me tell you something, Brent. Uh, it wasn't easy. It's not easy now, and uh, I am so proud that we do have <clears throat> excuse me have the internet. Because it has allowed so many independent artists to continue with their music when they would not have been able to. I knocked on so many doors when we were there and talked to so many people. And I did make a lot of good connections. But I'll tell you what happens in Nashville. Uh, You think, well, this is it. I'm getting a record deal. And the next thing you know, they've forgotten who you are the next time you call. Yeah. They tell you how great you are, and then they forget your name. <laughs> and and uh, knowing that, uh, what tactics did you use to try to overcome that? Well, I, I've always heard it said by many, many people in the music business, when you get one no and get one door slammed in your face, then that's one closer step to a yes. <laughs> Uh, that is true. Uh, I, I tell you what, for anybody who, who wants to to get a little more up close and familiar with Donna Nita, I hope you go check out her website, which is DonnaNita.com. And she's got a wealth of uh, photos in her photo gallery. And I wanted to pop up one here that, that you had posted. I, I would imagine this goes back to, to the 80s with, uh, <laughs> with uh, Bill Monroe be, behind you there. Tell me about that experience. <laughs> Let me tell you, don't I look cute there in those white britches? And <laughs> I wasn't expecting to get up on stage. You notice that fiddle player over there? Uh-huh. His name is Billy Joe Foster, and he was from Oklahoma, Duncan, Oklahoma. And I went to see him when we were in Nashville, and he said, you need to, I need to get ready because we're calling you on stage. It was an unbelievable treat. Do you remember what you sang that day? Uh, Blue Moon of Kentucky, and you know that <laughs> that was just why did I sing that uh, one? But I did. <laughs> that's like going one on one with Michael Jordan. That's just one of those things that uh, that's uh, about as good as it gets, right there. <laughs> it, I, it is. It is. I, that was a great experience. I've had some great experiences over the years. So when all is said and done, how does Donna Nita want to be remembered as an artist? What, what what do you hope your legacy in music will be? I hope that people will, rem- will remember me as being real and being pure and giving my honest and best performance and know that I love the people out there. Well, before we get out of here this week, I want to share one more from Don Anita from the new album Forever Country. This is Please Be Gentle on Fast Line Fast Track. Please be gentle. 
Just great, great stuff from Dawn and Nita. And before we get out of here, I want to let folks know that if they want to learn more about Dawn and Nita and purchase her music, they can visit her website, dawnandnita.com. And Dawn, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track and welcome you back anytime you want to share new music or just hang out with us. I certainly will. And you have done such a wonderful job. And I appreciate you so much, Brent. And thank you for all the people who joined us and uh, all of my fans out there. 
And we love and appreciate Dawn and Nita. And we love and appreciate you, too. And we hope you come back again next week. And we want to say a special shout-out to our musical sponsor, the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in the heart of downtown Nashville, Tennessee. I hope that when you're in the Nashville area, you'll go and check them out. They have a great selection of vinyl, CDs, and merchandise. And if they don't have it, I know they'll find it for you. So stop by and say hi and tell them you heard it on Fast Line Fast Track. Well, Plant 2021 is right around the corner here. And if you're in the market for a new tractor, perhaps a new planter, head on over to FastLine.com and check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Again, that's FastLine.com. And while you're on the website, please be sure to sign up for the print catalog for your state or region. No need to head into town to pick one up off the convenience store rack. The FastLine catalog is still being delivered directly to your mailbox, and it's still a favorite resource of farmers and ranchers across our great country. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fast Line Fast Track podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Deezer, Audible, and Radio.com. And be sure to hit us up on all those socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Well, it's time for us to get on out of here. So until next time, it's Brent Adams saying y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fastline Fast Track, presented by Fastline Media Group. To learn more about Fastline's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastlineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, Fastline.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at Fastline.com. <laughs>